Hi and welcome to Make Space for Nature from Nature Scott, the podcast that celebrates Scotland's nature and landscapes. I'm Kirsten Guthrie and in each episode I, along with my co-presenters and guests, will help you connect with and take care of our amazing natural world. In this episode, we chat with Brodie Thomas, who's a project placement with Nature Scott, helping to facilitate our use of genetic technologies. She explains what environmental DNA is and how this non-invasive sampling technique can monitor wildlife and help build up a detailed image of what lives where. Hi Brodie, welcome to the Make Space for Nature podcast. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I'm really happy to be here talking about some of the work I'm involved in. Brilliant, that's great to have you here. And you're going to tell us more about environmental DNA or eDNA for short. Can you tell us what that actually is, please? Yeah, so environmental DNA is a genetic material obtained directly from an environmental source. So it could be soil, sediment, water, even filtered air. eDNA is commonly composed of organismal DNA. So that can be when the whole organism is within the sample. So for example, bacteria, or it can be extra organismal DNA. And that's when animals are kind of moving through their environment and they're giving off bodily secretions like mucus, skin, feces. Yeah, and then we can use this eDNA to answer ecological questions. Brilliant. It's a fascinating subject, actually. And you're in a, a project placement post at the moment, and you're helping to facilitate Nature Scott's use of genetic technology. So what, what does your day-to-day work actually involve? Yeah, so the main part of my role is to create educational guidance for um, Nature Scott staff on how to use molecular tools within the organisation. So this includes technical advice on DNA-based methods, such as environmental DNA, but it also looks at conservation genetics, which is concerned with reducing extinction risk in vulnerable populations or species. I also get to go out in the field sometimes and get involved in various genetic-based projects within Nature Scott. That's brilliant, Brady. And for the sampling process itself, can you tell us about how that works? You know, are you are you out there with sampling pots, scooping up water and mud, and then taking it back to a laboratory, or how does that all work? Uh, Yeah, in simple terms, that's pretty much how it's done. Uh, However, when you are collecting the samples, you have to consider things like contamination and also how you're going to preserve the DNA within the sample. So, for example, if I was to go out and collect water samples, the best way to get the DNA from the water is actually to use a special filter. You can then keep the filter uh, cool or you can add a preservative which stops the DNA from degrading. And then once you have that DNA, you can take it back to the lab. And then there's a few different processes you have to carry out. So the first is uh, extracting the DNA. Once you've extracted the DNA, you can carry out a process called PCR. Most of the audience would be familiar with PCR from COVID testing. And the process is actually really common in molecular biology. And what it does is it produces thousands of copies of a small section of DNA. So before you start the PCR process, you can change the PCR mixture. So for example, um, you can amplify the DNA of one species, or you can amplify the DNA of several species, like all the fish within the sample. If you do decide to amplify all the fish within the sample, you would have to then uh, sequence the DNA. And this is when you kind of read the combination of letters within the DNA. And once you've done that, you can put these sequences then into a database 
this database contains sequences from across the tree of life, and then it, that will tell you exactly what species you have within that water sample. Well, that is that is quite a process. Um, and, and once we've got the information from the eDNA, what, what can it actually be used for? How does that impact our, our work and our decision making? I mean, is there example projects that you've perhaps worked on that you could tell us about? So the simplest use of eDNA is that it can give you presence or absence information on a particular species. And it's really, really sensitive. So it's particularly good at detecting invasive non-natives. It can also tell us what biological communities are present in a given area. And this can include species from across the tree of life. So bacteria, fungi, plants, animals, etc. There's also a lot of traction for eDNA to provide evidence on ecosystem health as eDNA can show very subtle changes in community composition due to land use changes. So we're still quite a while off using eDNA in routine biodiversity monitoring, but um, I do think it's going to have quite a big impact on decision-making in the future. Brodie, to help our listeners understand a bit better about practical uses for, for eDNA in, in your work or your colleagues' work, do you have an example of, of a way that it could be used to benefit uh, nature or an environment? Yeah, so I think for me, uh, the ecosystem health approach is really, really interesting. So there's a project going on um, at the moment in Scotland and the project is looking at how we can use eDNA in fish farm compliance assessments. So what they're doing is they're taking sediment from underneath fish farms and then looking at what bacteria are within that sediment. If they find that there's bacteria that's associated with anoxic conditions, so conditions where there's less oxygen, that means that maybe that there's too much nutrients and waste coming from the fish farm. So I think that's a really interesting way of using eDNA. And given it's such a new developing and, and complex uh, subject matter, is there a particular benefit or, or part of it that you find the most interesting in your day-to-day -day work? I think with eDNA, it can just produce so much more data. So we've got so much more knowledge on what species are actually there especially the tiny tiny little things like bacteria and fungi yeah it gives us just so much more information and it's just another tool in our arsenal um, which will help with monitoring biodiversity loss and also looking at uh, how biodiversity responds to changes. Brody, could you share with us a list of some some of the pros and cons of, of using eDNA e and, um, and, and what we can get out of it? Yeah, so like all um, monitoring techniques, you know, it has pros and it has cons. And I think some of the main positives of eDNA is that, like I said before, is very highly sensitive, able to detect uh, rare, elusive and cryptic species. It's also non-invasive. So there's a reduced ethical implications in using eDNA compared to other monitoring techniques. And the last one, it's thought to be less labor intensive compared to more traditional monitoring approaches. Because of this, then the cost reduce and time can be allocated elsewhere. And then I think some of the cons to eDNA are that it doesn't give accurate abundance data. So it can offer semi-quantitative semi information on abundance, but it can't give you, you know, actual numbers. It's also not suitable for all species. So ectothermic species like reptiles, they don't actually give off much DNA. So Sometimes they can be quite difficult to detect. And the last one is that it can't give you information on age class or size of, a, of an organism. 
And sometimes that's needed for population assessments. And what about um, gender? Does it does it tell you about the gender of, of the species as well? No, not at the moment. No, 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 that's interesting, isn't it? And and what about a, a kind of time limit on, on eDNA? Um, you, you kind of referred to there of the kind of sampling process. Does it become less reliable as time passes or, or perhaps in certain environments? Um, so, yeah, so eDNA, it can persist in the environment usually for about 48 hours, but it can be longer. And there's lots of different factors which can affect how quickly it degrades. So some of those things are pH, lower pHs will cause it to degrade a lot faster. So acidic conditions, hotter temperatures can cause an increase in degradation and also UV radiation. So there's quite a few different things that can affect it. So if you are going to do some sampling, it's really important to consider these factors. And if you think they are coming into play, you might want to increase your sampling effort. And, and what about when it's in, in rivers and you're, you're taking water? Does it does it travel as such down down the river? Yeah, it it can it can travel quite far sometimes, but usually, um, you know, it, because of the degradation, it's usually not too much of a much of a problem. Technologies like like this using eDNA is obviously advancing all the time. Um, how do you see technology being used and developed in the future? I think mostly with costs decreasing, it's just going to be used a lot more um, commonly in biodiversity monitoring, hopefully. But I'm also interested in some other aspects of this work, which is looking at how aerial DNA is going to evolve in the coming years. And that's basically filtering DNA from the air. And there was two really in- interesting studies at the beginning of this year, which looked at which looked at doing this uh, in zoos. So I'll have to um, pin those articles to to the notes on the podcast. Brilliant! No, that's great. We'll we'll certainly add any links into onto the podcast page for our for listeners to read more about the the subject. And and our podcast, it's you know we are our campaign is our make uh, make space for nature, um, and it always provides practical ways people can look after wildlife and and obviously help to reverse nature loss. How do you make space for nature in your life, Brody? Yeah, I well, I, I walk the dog every day and that's a great excuse to to get outside and be in nature. And I think when I do that, I usually try and pick up any rubbish on the floor if I see it. I also try to decrease my carbon footprint by eating lots of plant-based foods and also you know, buying items secondhand when I can. So those are just some things that I do to help out. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us the, some of the, the complex insights into eDNA and, and how it's used. And as we know, you know the tiniest discovery or, or little bits of data that we add, you know, anything that can help with biodiversity loss and, and helping nature in, in Scotland or in the world is, is fascinating and, and hugely important. So thank you so much for your time today, Brody. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Make Space for Nature, please follow it on your podcast app and leave a review or rating. We'd also love you to tell more people about the series. For more ways to connect with and help protect Scotland's natural world, go to nature.scot.